0: Good to see you today here in the auditorium and in the venue. We extend a special welcome to you if you're new here this morning. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Kearney Free, and so grateful that you chose to worship with us today. We know there's so many things you can do on Sunday morning, uh, so many things to do in Carney throughout the week, but appreciate you prioritizing Sunday morning worship. As we know, it sets the course for our entire week, and especially for those who are newcomers here today. You can do so many different things, but you chose to be here with us for worship today. And we thank you for that. We pray that you have an opportunity to connect with God and connect with others in this room. And uh, if you have any questions about the church, please let us know. And i uh, be happy to answer your questions today also. We're going through a series here, a longer uh, sermon series that we've titled God's Story, Our Story, in which we're looking at the overarching themes of the Bible through 40 narratives in the Bible across 2018. It's a big undertaking. And today we're going to talk about God's plan for the family. (gasps) It'll be good. I think it'll be encouraging as we look at the book of Genesis and a number of uh, key ideas that we get from the book of Genesis on God's plan for the family. And uh, we won't be in any particular passage. We'll look at a number of different passages as we go. But what we're going to see is this the devastating consequences of human failure and the grace of God, which is even bigger still. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is true. We're going to see the devastating consequences of human failure and the grace of God, which is bigger still. In order to get there, I think it'll be helpful for you to take a quick look at this video. It's a longer video. It's actually eight minutes. It comes from The Bible Project. And you can go to thebibleproject.com and look at any number of videos like this if you happen to like this. It's, it's uh, specifically for those who are visual learners, but really any of us can learn a lot from it. If you've ever gone through the book of Genesis and you say, wow, there's so many characters. There's so many epical stories that could be turned into great movies. Anyone else? Like, how do you summarize it all? Well, in about eight minutes, this video will do it. Take a look.
1: The book of Genesis. In the first video we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all things and he makes humans in his image to rule the world on his behalf. The humans choose sin and rebellion and so the world spins out of control into violence and death, all leading up to the rebellion and scattering of the people in Babylon. And so the big question is, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world? Well, out of that scattering at Babylon, the author traces a genealogy of just one family that leads eventually to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 opens up a whole new movement in the story. God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, which God says will become his one day. And in that land, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to make his name great and to bless him. Now, these promises are connected back to earlier parts of the book. So Babylon had arrogantly tried to make a great name for itself, and that didn't go over very well. But God, in his generosity, is going to bestow a great name on this no-name guy, Abraham. And God's blessing of Abraham echoes all the way back to that original blessing God gave humanity in the beginning. So the question is why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? And the last line of God's promise makes this clear. So that all the families of the earth will find God's blessing in you. Now, this is key for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And this is why the whole rest of the Old Testament story is just going to focus on this one family, eventually called the people of Israel. This is also why Israel will later be called a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. God wants to use them to show all of the other nations what He's like. And ultimately, this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets and poets who say that its fulfillment will come through Israel's messianic king, whose reign will bring justice and peace to all of the nations. Now, at this point of the story, none of that's clear. You just have to keep reading and watch the promise develop. And so the rest of the book focuses on Abraham and his family. First, Abraham himself, then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And the stories about each generation, they're united by two main themes. So first, each generation of Abraham's family is marked by repeated failure. They just keep making really bad decisions that mess up their lives and that put God's promise in jeopardy. However, God remains faithful to them. He keeps rescuing them from themselves and reaffirming his commitment to bless them and bless the nations through them despite their failings. So the Abraham stories. God had promised Abraham a huge family, but on two different occasions. He's afraid for his life because other men are attracted to his wife. And so he denies that he's even married to her, which creates, of course, all of these problems. And not only that, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they can't have children. And so Sarah arranges for Abraham to sleep with one of their servant girls, which also creates all of these problems in the family. But each time, God bails Abraham out. And in chapters 15 and 17, God even formalizes his promise to Abraham with an official commitment called a covenant. This is a classic scene. God invites Abraham to look up at the night stars and to count them. And he says, that's how numerous your family is going to be. And despite all of the odds, having no kids and no way to have any at the moment, Abraham looks up in the sky and simply trusts God's promise. And God responds by entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will become a father of many nations, that God's blessing may come to the whole world. God asked Abraham to mark his family with a sign of the covenant, circumcision of all the male boys in the family. This is a symbol to remind them that the fruitfulness of their family is a gift from God. And so Abraham has lots of kids eventually and he dies at a good old age. Now, the Jacob stories play out these themes even more dramatically. From birth, Jacob lives up to the meaning of his name, which is deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and he does it by deceiving his old blind father, no less, and then he just takes off. He goes on to take four wives even though he really only loves one, Rachel, and this creates all of these rivalries in the family. The only thing that humbles Jacob is being deceived by his uncle Laban who cheats him out of years of his life. The tables have finally turned. And so it's a humbled Jacob that returns to his homeland. And in a very strange story, Jacob ends up wrestling with God as he demands that God bless him. Some things never really change, do they? However, God honors his determination and he passes Abraham's blessing on to him. And he renames Jacob as Israel, which means wrestles with God. Now it's this last part of the book, the story of Jacob's sons, where all the themes come to a head. Jacob loves his second to youngest son Joseph more than any of the others and he gives him this special jacket. And the ten older sons come to hate Joseph and so they kidnap him and they plan to kill him but instead they decide to just sell him into slavery in Egypt where he ends up in prison. Talk about family failure. But God is with Joseph and he orchestrates Joseph's release from prison and Pharaoh ends up elevating Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt. And so Joseph saves the nation of Egypt during a famine. And he also ends up saving his brothers and his family from starving to death. And so once again, we can see the folly and the sin of Abraham's family is met with God's faithfulness who subverts even the evil of the brothers into an occasion to save life. And this is actually what Joseph says right near the end of the book. He says to his brothers, you all planned this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. Now, these words are strategically placed at the end of the book because they summarize not only the story of Joseph and his brothers, but the book as a whole. From Genesis 3 onward, humans keep acting selfishly and doing evil, but this God is not going to leave his world to its own devices. He remains faithful and determined to bless people despite their failures. You can see this especially in how that mysterious promise about the descendant of the woman gets developed throughout the book. So remember, Genesis 3, God promised that this wounded victor would come and crush the snake and defeat evil at its source. And the author then connects this promise directly to the line of Abraham. This is a part of how God's going to bring his blessing to the nations. Now from Abraham, this promise gets connected to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob and this is how. In an extremely important poem in chapter 49, in aging Jacob, he's on his deathbed, he wants to bless his 12 sons. And when he comes to Judah, Jacob predicts that Judah will become the tribe of Israel's royal leaders and that one day a king will come who will command the obedience of all the nations and fulfill God's promise to restore the garden blessing to all of the world world. And then after this, Jacob dies. And later Joseph dies too. And the growing family remains in Egypt. And so the book of Genesis ends with all of these future hopes and promises left hanging and undeveloped. And it forces you to turn the page to see how it's all going to turn out. But for now, that's the book of Genesis.
0: Okay, you get all that? You'll have a quiz after church where you'll have to recreate that drawing. That's at thebibleproject.com. And there's a number of different illustrations like that for large sections of the Bible that can really, really be helpful as we're marching through this series. But a critical message that you saw in that video that I want to reinforce here this morning is about the priority that God places on the family. The priority that God places on the family. What you have here at the beginning is this couple, Abraham and Sarah, who become a family that are made to bless other families, that are then made to become a nation that blesses other nations, that then eventually become the church that blesses the world. But it began with a family Not for the sake of that family, not for the name of their tribe, not for the sake of Abraham and Sarah, but that that family would be an instrument of God's blessing, becoming a nation called Israel, and then ultimately blessing communities through the church, but again, beginning with a family, which was God's idea in the very first place. You see, family is a big deal. To God, I love that idea because it—I love that that video rather, but because it reinforces the, these two central ideas as it relates to family. And these two central ideas that we stated in week one of this message—if you weren't here, week one of this message, January seventh—it it sets the context for the entire year. And in that message, I shared four major themes that you'll see in this series again and again. And two of them you saw on that video. The first is God discloses himself, God's self-disclosure to us, that he wants us to know him, that he is faithful, and he is just, and he is a covenant-keeping God. Okay? You see that again and again in Genesis. He's a promise-keeping God. And in spite of human failure, he remains faithful. And so you see also the devastating consequences of human failure failure. God's self-disclosure, he wants us to know him and the devastating consequences of human failure. So, in Genesis, you see Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and the flood and the tower of Babel and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and their four Jacob and his four wives and their 12 sons and on and on it goes and each of them demonstrate both of these themes failure and God's kindness covenant keeping promise keeping God who is bigger than their failures have you noticed in your bible reading up to this point just how ordinary and messed up the families of the bible are come on anyone else I mean, it's all over the place. It's like if you've come into church this morning and you're carrying several Samsonite bags full of family drama, well, you're not alone. Okay, that's all of us. That's the nature of living in this world, in a fallen world, and we see that from the very beginning in Genesis. I mean, is there anyone in this room who's had some trouble in their marriage and they say to their husband, well, go lie down with her? And maybe we'll have a baby together via this surrogate woman. If you have, don't raise your hand. Okay, Abraham and Sarah did that. Or anyone with four wives today? Again, don't raise your hand. Okay. But Jacob did that. The Bible takes the cake for messed up families. And all of this illustrates an absolutely fundamental point of biblical interpretation that we have to reinforce here though, this morning and that you have to keep in your mind as you read through Genesis and many other places in the Old Testament, and it's this. God does not always prescribe what the Bible describes. God does not always prescribe what the Bible oftentimes describes. So, This is incredibly important to understand. If you don't understand this principle, you're going to be regularly offended by the Bible. If you don't understand this principle, you're going to be liable to skip over significant passages in the Bible or skim over or silently ignore them because you say, well, that just doesn't fit my my portrait of God. If you don't understand this principle, you will unintentionally teach your kids that it's not safe to ask questions about what happened in the Bible. Very dangerous place to be. you got to understand, though, this principle that God does not always prescribe what the Bible describes. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you see all kinds of stuff that is starkly opposed to the will of God. Like what, Adrian? I'm so glad you asked. Like infidelity, come on, like polygamy, like slavery, like trickery, like greed, like deceit, like fratricide, and on and on you can go through these. And the thing that I take from this, one of the important lessons that I take from these very real historical events is that the Bible doesn't lionize its leading characters, It's one of my favorite things about the Bible. I've read many, many different uh, religious texts, holy books, other kinds of literature, and they all lionize the lead characters. And the ancient myths of the world, the Greek myths of the world, they always lionize the lead characters. But the Bible doesn't do that. What it doesn't say is say, here's average, ordinary people who make huge mistakes. And it's part of what demonstrates the reliability of the Bible that these patriarchs, of Genesis are portrayed as they really were in their utter humanity. God does not always prescribe what the Bible describes. This is critical interpretation principle that we must teach ourselves and teach our kids. Now that said, there are some really good prescriptions, some really good instructions in the Bible for how we would lead our families. And this morning I just wanna give you three, again, all from the book of Genesis, And I pray that you have open minds to receive them this morning. Here's prescription number one. Stick to God's blueprint. Stick to God's blueprint. In Genesis 1 and 2, there is perfect harmony in the world. There's sinless perfection. And within the instructions of the perfect harmony that God has made... We learn there in those first two chapters how things should be. Not how things are as a result of human sin, but how things should be as we set the course, as we set the ideal for what we want to go after in the future. Genesis 2:18, the Lord God said, "It is not good for the man to be alone." I want to tell you that whether you're married or single today, whether you have children or you do not have children today, this is a principle that applies to every single one of us. It's not good for a man or woman to be alone. Isn't that so? And that goes for marriage, for friendship, whatever. What it's talking about there, first in the original context, of course, what was marriage, but that's an application, it's a principle for all of life that we need community, That's why one of my favorite verses comes from Psalm 68, 6, which says, God sets the lonely in families. God settles the lonely in families. God cares about you so much that even if you don't have a close biological family of your own, even if you're not married, even if you don't have kids, God desires to settle you into a wonderful family. And there are times for sure that a friend sticks closer than a brother. Isn't that so? Okay? You know, as the Bible progresses, this is just extra credit. Okay, this is a bonus. I didn't, it's not part of your message, though, this morning. There will be no quiz on this. But as the Bible progresses in the New Testament, do you know that there's two different kinds of family that are demonstrated? There's biological family, marriage family, which we're talking about today, and there's spiritual family. And only one will last. Did you know that? Only one will last. There's one that takes precedent as the Bible progresses, and it's not the biological family, it's the spiritual family. Now, I do have some hope that we will see our loved ones who have passed away in the Lord when we get to heaven, but the Bible doesn't actually say that explicitly. It seems to imply it in some places. I do have hope for that. What the Bible says explicitly is that There is a name that is bigger than your family name. There is a name that is bigger than any race. There is a name that is bigger than any tribe. There is a name that is bigger than any nationality. And that name is beloved child of God. That name is brother or sister of Jesus. That name is Christian. You see, this spiritual family that God invites all of us to is critical. Now, again, that's a side note. You didn't pay for that, but there you go. After creating Adam, let me come back to what I was talking about today. After creating Adam, God puts him in this deep sleep, and he takes one of Adam's ribs from his side, and then he stitches Adam up, and then he creates Eve out of Adam's rib, and I don't understand how he did that. But he's all-powerful, all-knowing, healer God, so I trust by faith that he did on the basis of many other things that I know he did, like rising his son from the grave. So I believe he could do this as well. And so it says, Genesis 2, 23 and 24, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is Adam. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves His father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The great theologian Matthew Henry evokes the spirit of this beautiful narrative here in Genesis 2. When he describes it this way, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, taken out of the rib of one and forms the other, he describes it this way. Such a beautiful quote. Please hear this. Not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled down by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm, to be protected by him. Near his heart, to be beloved by him. You hear that? That There's this equality as we're made in the image and likeness of God. That she's not above him, she's not below him. Amen, men? She's not below him, she's next to him by his heart, protected and loved by him. This is what God has in store for a great marriage. And it's described there in verse 24, he will leave mother and father, she will leave mother and father, they will cleave to one another, and they will become one flesh. So leave here has the idea of Leaving geographically, it might just be leaving down the street, that's fine, but we have a new roof over our heads. We are in this together, we're making a new start in our marriage, and I identify with you first and foremost, no longer do I identify with my family of origin, together we're in this. We have a fresh start as a family now. We've left all others, and we make this relationship, this one earthly relationship, our priority. Even more than our kids. This is it. We prioritize this one. We cleave together. We leave all others and we cleave to one another. And that has in mind we become one with each other emotionally and spiritually and even financially. Like you have some debt, now I got some debt. Okay? You make less money than me, now I make less money with you. We join our finances together. We're in this as a team. We build trust with each other. We cleave to one another. And then we become one flesh. And this is another one of those signs of the covenant. God gives this covenant that the beginning of marriage would be this, Neither one is ever laid with a man or a woman. They come together, and they get to be with each other, and a sign of the covenant is you now get to enter into this beautiful, sacred marriage bond called sex. And it's given to you for two wonderful purposes, for procreation and for the bond of Intimacy that you two are for each other for life, that you commit to keep your eyes only unto her, you commit to keep your eyes only unto him, you commit to offer your bodies to one another for life. And it's not insignificant that God only provides one woman for the man, is it? This is the all-powerful, all-generous God who could have provided anything he wanted, but he just provides one for The man and for each other. This indicates divine approval of heterosexual monogamy and enjoyment for life. And much of Genesis goes on to share the unhappiness caused by almost any other arrangement imaginable. As you continue to read throughout this book, you see there is nothing new under the sun. You're going to see it all in Genesis. Now up on the screen, I want to show you a picture of my father-in-law and mother-in-law. This is Tom and Glory Phillip. Tom in the chair there with their beloved dog, Oreo. And there's Glory and then their four grandkids, my two kids and then Susie's sister's two kids. And Tom is now almost 80 years old now and he immigrated to America about 50 years ago. And he's had a really successful business in Eugene, Oregon. It has 50, 60 employees now and he's the patriarch of the family. Through him, many others in the family have been able to immigrate here as well, and they also have been blessed, Bob, by the American experience, but I oftentimes think of him, and I thought of him again this week as I was preparing this message, Bob, because he knows, uh, he says some really pithy statements from time to time, and he said this statement to Susie back when she was 25 years old, and there was no suitable partner on the horizon for Susie. There was not yet an Adrian in play. (laughs) And uh, at 25, to get married in Indian culture is kind of old. Not so much in American culture, but in Indian culture it is. And so he took her aside and he said, you know, Susie, you can either get married Western way and fall in love first, or you can get married Eastern way and fall in love second. Which was his not so subtle way of offering an arranged marriage. To which we gasp, right?
1: <gasps>
0: How could he? But then you look at like Genesis 24 and you see an arranged marriage. And it's actually a really, really good one. Isaac and Rebecca. And their marriage is not sealed with a wedding ring on the finger. It's sealed with a nose ring in her nose. And uh, their marriage didn't begin with lunch dates or eHarmony or Match.com. It just began with two Parents saying we trust each other, we're praying for our son and daughter. I know, I agree, it's crazy. We're praying for our son and daughter, and we bring them together, and we trust by faith that God's gonna do something great here as we're praying for them. Now, I'm not recommending that to anyone, okay? I'm not recommending that. But I think about that chapter, and I think about Tom Phillips' statement, my father in law's statement, but because The underlying principle in that statement, at least as applies to me there, is the feeling of love, friends, the feeling of love comes and goes. If you've been married for decades, you know what I'm talking about. The feeling comes and goes. The covenant never changes. The covenant stays the same. It's the covenant which can produce love. When he said, you can get married first and fall in love later, that's what he's talking about. And people say, how could he? Well, guess what? In India, guess what the divorce rate is? Less than 10%. Guess what it is in America? Well, we won't go there. Okay. The point is, men, how do you know she's the one? Because you said I do. Ladies. How do you know he's the one? Because you said I do. And you stick to the blueprint. Now I know there are others in here in this room who say, well, you know, I didn't stick to the blueprint. And things didn't go that way for me. And things have been broken in my life. What do I do with that? I'm a firm believer you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. All you can do is go from right where you are. And there will be consequences as I'm sure you found if you broke the blueprint, okay? Everyone finds consequences of sin, me too, me too. Everyone on this stage and everyone in the audience, everyone in the venue, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, we all experienced consequences, and you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. But what you can do is say, from today, I'm going after God's best. I'm going after God's ideal. I won't settle for anything less. And I start with that right now. And so it's kind of like, all right, we got our two boats, and we made it to this island together, and somehow a fire came onto the boats, and the boats are burned, and you can't get off the island together. You can't get off the island individually. So whether you're married for the first time today or you're married again today, you say, we are on this island alone, and we commit to leaving all others, to cleaving to one another, and becoming and staying one flesh for life. That's the blueprint. Second, God would invite us to strive for reconciliation, to seek reconciliation. And perhaps there's no better place, we all know, to seek reconciliation than the family. Genesis will show us again and again God's promises being enhanced after acts of obedience, as I just noted. And Genesis shows us again and again God's promises being delayed, but not necessarily nullified by acts of human disobedience. God is a covenant keeping God, a faithful God, and He fulfills His promises even in spite of human disobedience. But There are consequences to that disobedience and the Bible is this great story of grace triumphing over disobedience amongst families broken by sin through the instrument that God gives us which is seeking reconciliation. Above all else, we seek to live at peace with one another and what better place to start doing that than the family. You think of this family, Esau, and Jacob and both of them were at fault Esau was envious and he was gluttonous and he maintained that envy for a long long time and it turned into vengeful wrath and Jacob was as you saw in that video a deceiver he was a duplicitous trick and he was awful but Jacob, later on in the book of Genesis, he comes to his senses and he fa- falls upon his knees after he wrestles with God and he realizes it's true. I've been a deceit, I've been a trickery. And I need to go to my brother and I need to repent. And he falls upon his brother's knees. He brings his flocks with him and he goes to his brother and he repents and he cries over him. He says, I'm sorry. And Esau sees Jacob coming. In Genesis 33, 4, and Esau ran to meet Jacob, and he embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept together in spite of all of that brotherly drama that had preceded them for all those years. One day, somebody's got to be the bravest to say, I'm sorry. I shared this little quote on Facebook a number of weeks ago. I think actually a woman in this church shared it with me about a year ago and it's been so profound for me. I've just been sitting on it for a number of weeks. The first to apologize is the bravest. The first to forgive is the strongest. The first to forget is the happiest. We've experienced that. Do you need to be the bravest today? Do you need to be the strongest today? God help us to be happy as we move on. We'll talk about this even more next week as we get to Joseph's story. It won't be the focus for the whole message I want you to know, but it'll be a focus part of the message because Genesis 38 through 50 has this theme. So powerful in Joseph's life. Second, seek reconciliation. And finally, I should wrap up here. Spend your best resources on family. Spend your best resources on family. Stick to the blueprint. Seek reconciliation and spend your absolute best resources in family. I think we see this beautifully prescribed for us in Genesis 2, as uh, again, God has created Adam and Eve, and the man says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. She's part of me, so I'm going to love her as myself. I'm going to protect her as I would protect my own children. I'm going to take care of her. That's what God would prescribe Be a sacrificial lover for my wife, a sacrificial leader, a servant to my bride. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's what's prescribed. Then you look two chapters later and you see the description of the exact opposite from their son Cain. And You all know the story. Cain has killed his brother Abel. The very first murder in the Bible comes between brothers. And God knows what Cain has done, but he comes to Cain, and as God has oftentimes want to do, he brings us those convicting messages and the quietness of our heart. And he comes to Cain, and he says, where's your brother? You admit what you've done. Where's your brother? And what does Cain say? I mean, one of the most harrowing statements in the Bible Am I my brother's keeper? What does he have to do with me? Could I care less about him? You expect me to care about my brother? Well, yeah. Yeah, God does. You know, I'll spend money on my car. I'll do this annual maintenance on my car to keep it running okay. You will too, right? I'll uh, spend money and time on my house to keep it looking nice. Thousands of dollars. You will too, right? I go to the dentist, get my teeth clean. I go to the doctor, get checkups. None of that stuff will last, right? You hear where I'm going? Isn't it interesting that we will spend untold thousands of dollars on things like cars and houses, untold numbers of hours, untold amount of emotional energy on these things that won't last I want to ask you, will you commit your best emotional, financial, and temporal resources to your relationships that will last? To the most important things that God has given to us, our marriage and our kids. I sometimes get heartbroken because people will come to me and it's happened this way for years across many churches. People will come to me when it's 11:59 on their marriage, and they'll ask for help. And it's really too late. Every once in a while, God might do a miracle, but I mean, that's like coming to your mechanic while your engine's on fire. It's too late for your car. It'll need a new engine. It probably is ready for the junkyard you got to commit to working on it, friends. you got to fight for your marriage. you got to spend your best resources on it. Refusing the idea that it would be a weak thing to go get counseling. Banish the thought. It's a strong thing. It's a courageous move to go get counseling. It's a strong and courageous move to go meet with a pastor. It's a strong and courageous move to say, I will spend thousands of dollars, my best mental and emotional energy on this relationship, on my kids, and on their emotional health. I wonder if you would commit with me, even as we pray, will you give the best resources you got? To the most important relationships that God has given you. Would you pray with me? Father, we know this is your will for us. We know that you desire, Lord God, that we would throw away Our pride at not having our stuff all together. And we would acknowledge what the Bible has already said about us. That we are deeply in need. So Father, we all come to you together as one church in this moment. Admitting to you that we are sinners in need of a holy and righteous and loving God. Father, for us personally, we need your forgiveness. And for our relationships, we need your strength. We're talking today, God, about our families. We love our families. We're talking today, God, about our marriages. We're talking about our kids. We want to save our kids while there's yet time. Would you help us, God, to throw away pride, And do whatever it takes to help our kids when they're struggling. To encourage them, to build them up, to spend our best resources on them. Would you help us to do whatever it takes to fight for our marriage. To stick to this blueprint. To seek reconciliation when things aren't right between husband and wife. I pray, God, that there might be some men in this room who would be the kind of servant leaders who would fall upon their knees even tonight and turn to their bride and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I pray that there would be women in this room who are strong enough to say, I forgive you. And maybe there would be women who also need to be brave enough to say, I'm sorry. And men who would be brave and strong enough to say, I forgive you. Let's move on. Let's move toward God's best. Let's be a lighthouse for our kids, a lighthouse for our neighborhood, a lighthouse for our families. Till all the world knows that Christ is Lord, that he's the reconciler, that he's the redeemer, that he's the one who makes things right again. We invite you to do it even in us, God. May it be so. We pray by faith in Jesus' name.